So um, as we come to God's Word, we're thinking a lot about the journey toward holiness. We've been doing it with our friend John Mark Coma right the way from January through to Easter. And we've been working our way through these nine practices from the life of Jesus. They are Sabbath, prayer, fasting, solitude, generosity, scripture, sacrament, and witness. And you might have noticed along the way so far that some of them seem very countercultural. They're not like the kind of perceived logic that you're going to get on a reel, on a life hack, or on the next series of Netflix. Like, this is not generally the way that people in the West are taught to live. In fact, many of these practices can feel very upside down from perceived logic. And if you felt like that, that's good, because they are. So often when Jesus speaks about his kingdom, he speaks about it as an upside down countercultural kingdom. He says, doesn't he, things like this, the, last sh- the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He says, if you don't forgive others, you can't receive forgiveness for yourself. But nowhere actually does that upside down teaching hit the road harder, I think, than in Jesus' teachings on generosity. Jesus is quoted famously in Acts 20 when he says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And the word blessed there is the word makarios. It's literally at its simplest level, simply means happy. One translation says there is more happiness in giving than in receiving. But I wonder, I wonder if you believe that that's actually true. I mean, I've been following Jesus for a lot of years now, and I think I've sort of theoretically thought that must be true, but practically I'm not sure I've entirely believed that. Like, you know, when I was 10 years old, my family, not so much known for gift giving, it's just not their thing, I managed to persuade my parents that I said, if I give you some money from my bank account for Christmas, would you give me a Tamiya Hornet RC car? And they agreed. And so on Christmas morning, I received this big box with this car to build. Like, it was probably the best day of my childhood, honestly. I mean, just, I still cry at this thought of it. Um, It was amazing. Like, I love receiving. Receiving is really good. Is it really better to give than to receive? Well, it turns out it is. Jesus was right. Uh, Two neuroscientists, Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson out of Notre Dame University, did this massive study of thousands of people. And in their book, The Paradox of Generosity, they summarized the data. And this is what they found. Generous people are happier, healthier. They have lower levels of anxiety and depression, and they have better relationships. This was their summary. People rightly say that money cannot buy happiness. But money and happiness are still related in curious ways. Happiness can be the result, not of spending more money on oneself, but rather of giving money away to others. The data examined here shows that that this not to simply be a nice idea, but a social scientific fact. Well, they discovered, and they and neuroscientists discovered that when we give, that same dopamine that feel-good chemicals that go into our body that we feel when we eat a great meal or we um, watch our favorite program or we eat chocolate or we make love to our spouses or we click, someone clicks like on our post. That's not a really good one, is it? But those feelings are exactly the same when we give. 
Generosity is a pathway, it seems, toward joy. The Western formula that says more money equals more happiness isn't true, but there is a true formula. The true formula is more generosity equals more happiness. Richard Foster, he he writes it like this. The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question, with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. But what if? What if our relationship to money could be part of the story of healing, of transformation, of joy and love and peace in our lives? What if Jesus would want to take us on a journey? Now, I think we've got good grounds for the conversation because do you know that Jesus has so much to say about this topic? So much. I've never added up every single word of Jesus' teaching, but people who have more brains and more time than I have, have. And they will tell you that over 25% of everything Jesus has to say about anything relates to money. It just does. A quarter of all of the Gospels, I mean, I don't know how you'd feel if one in every four sermons of vintage was on money, I think you might find another church. But Jesus has lots to say. And it's funny because it's not like he's a Jewish rabbi who needs to raise money for his lifestyle. It's not that he's a Jewish rabbi trying to raise money to change the roof on the temple in Jerusalem. It's not even that he's trying to raise money to care for the poor. He's not doing any of those things, but yet he keeps talking about it. And I can only assume that he talks about it because he knows the impact that money and generosity and possessions have on the human heart. And the human heart matters significantly to Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to work through a passage in Luke chapter 11. Um, I just want to encourage you. We're going to do it verse by verse. If you've got your Bibles, have it open. Always good to bring a Bible to church. If you don't have one of these Bibles, use one of these Bibles uh, and look it up on your phone. But we'll work through. And we're going to start in verse 33. Luke 11, verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Now, that's like a little first century joke right there. Like, clearly, Jesus, yes, no one is going to take an expensive light and put it under a bowl because that would be a waste of time. It would be silly. Instead, Jesus says in 1134, your eye is a lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your whole body is full of darkness. Now that sounds a little bit cryptic, but the phrase healthy eye was actually a first century Jewish idiom. You might, it was a figure of speech. You might notice that you've got a footnote in your Bible under verse 34, where it says this, in mine at least, the Greek for healthy implies generous. And then you might see another one next to it, which is the Greek for unhealthy implies stingy. What Jesus is basically saying is there are two ways to see the world. You can either see it through an abundance mentality of generosity, or you can see it through a scarcity mentality of stinginess. And this is how you might sum them up. An abundance mentality says that God is good. He provides freely and generously because he is that kind of God. The whole universe 
is his life and it's his place. That life is a gift. And so therefore, as we receive from God, we can receive from gratitude for what he's done and with generosity toward neighbor. We give and we receive with joy. And in the first century, the Jews would have called that, you have a healthy eye, a healthy eye. But the opposite is the scarcity mentality. And a scarcity mentality says that there is not enough. It's to see the world from a position of lack. Like the future's bleak, the world's overpopulated, we're all going to hell in a handcart, and it's a zero-sum game. Which basically means the only way that I can have enough is if you don't have enough. So I have to fight you to make sure that I have everything that I need. It's a fear-based position, which you might on the flip side of it say it's a position of greed. Because it says that I earned it and I need it and I'm going to get it, whatever the cost. In the first century, a Jew would say, you have an unhealthy eye. So Jesus carries on, verse 35. See to it then that the light within you, what is within you, is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, then, uh, and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp which shines its light on you. Jesus is saying that, that what actually happens deep in our souls is very linked to how we give and view money and possessions. They're not two separate things. There is a deep relationship that goes between them. And if you therefore get your relationship with generosity right, then everything else will line up. Now Luke carries on in his account of Jesus into verse 37. And you might have a little heading. Mine says, the woes on the Pharisees and the experts in the law. Now that's not in the original translation, just so you know. But what, that little divider doesn't exist. But what Jesus is doing, we're hearing a story of how this works. Verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went and reclined at the table. Now this Pharisee, right, he's probably a wealthy dude. Like, think servants, nice big house, like great meal. And it turns out Jesus is not in any way adverse to receiving the generosity of wealthy people. Like, he's all about a good meal that someone else is cooking. Like, you can see it in the Bible if you want to see it, right? And so he goes around to this Pharisee's house. And by the way, I'm available for lunch. Uh, he, goes, <laughs> he, he, he goes around to this Pharisee's house, right? And the, but yet, the, he, he kind of offends the Pharisee almost immediately. It says in verse 38, the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now basically what happened is the Pharisees were extraordinarily anally retentive and they basically wanted to be above reproach in every area of perfection and religiosity. And so they'd taken the Levitical code for how priests were supposed to prepare for worship in the temple and they'd applied it to their houses and dinner. So there was like this massive ridiculous ceremony for just preparing your body and your hands for eating the food. And Jesus is like... Yeah, but no. Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. In fact, it, he basically just calls out the religiosity in the statement. He says in verse 39, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? I think that's a quite strong thing to say to your dinner host, whereas you're opening, like, please, would you wash your hands? No, I'm not doing that. You're wicked, right? <laughs> seems strong, seems seem strong, right? But Jesus is making a very clear point about hypocrisy. 
Um, I, have, I have two kids. Many of you will know our two kids. Uh, one of them is now a teenager. The other one is approaching fast. And we face the same battle in our house that probably every family on earth faces of how to try and keep your home tidy. Right? And we are usually losing. I will just say on this one. Often as the week progresses in our house, it gets worse and worse until usually around Friday time, I have to like, we have to stop everything. We're like, okay, kids, your rooms look as if nuclear warfare broke out and there's a biohazard emerging from the corners of the house. Like you need to go and clean your rooms. No more screen time, no more seeing friends until it's done. And so every week we sort of send the kids off to clean their rooms. And almost always what happens is the same. After 10 minutes, they return and say, we're done. <laughs> and I th- at first, I was, a bit sub- I was like, my kids are so good. Look how fast they tidy their rooms. And so I would go to the edge of their rooms, and I'd stand at the doorway and look in. I'd be like, wow, look, the floor. I've not seen that for a week. Look, the curtains are open. I can see their beds are made. Incredible. But then I realized they were getting me, uh, they, were, they were basically conning me. Right? Because what I realized is I had to then go into the room. And when I went into the room and looked under the bed, for example, or in the closet, what they'd actually done is taken all their junk, like the weak old food and all the dirty underwear and stuff, and they just shoved it into some corner thinking that I wouldn't see that it was there. They tried to persuade me that they tied it. But in fact, the insides of the room were as dark and disgusting as they'd ever been before. And that is Jesus' word picture for you uh, this morning. <laughs> Jesus basically says to these Pharisees, you're so keen to get the outside of the picture right. You clean everything up on the outside, but in on the inside you are full of wickedness and greed. Now, wickedness is just a generic like sin. You can insert your sin of choice there, but greed is a really interesting one. Now, it's kind of interesting. He says, you're greedy. Like, he goes around for dinner. They give him dinner. They say, wash your hands. He says, I'm not washing my hands. He says, okay, you're, and now he says to them, you're greedy. Doesn't seem to naturally like Adam. Except that what, of course, he's pointing out to you, that the darkness that's in their souls, the darkness in the corners of their lives, that is like a sort of growth, almost like that has the potential to overwhelm and ruin their whole person, is greed. And that is what greed does. It is like almost a cancer of the soul. But Jesus offers a solution. I love it. Jesus always offers a solution. But this solution is very black and white. It's very black and white. It's very blunt. It's very clear. He says it if you've got your Bibles. Verse 41. But now, as for what is inside you, for the greed, for the darkness, for the fungus that's growing on your soul, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. So I mean, what do you do if you're a naturally slightly greedy person? If you're a bit fearful around money, if you like nice stuff, if you wanna have all the nice things, like what do you do? Do you wake up one morning and say, ah, I will no longer be a greedy person because I heard a sermon about it at church on Sunday and now I am fine. Like, clearly not. So what do you do? No, Jesus says, the magic silver bullet is generosity. Be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. For Jesus, it's very clear. On one side is greed and one side is generosity. On one side is defamation. On on the other side is reformation. Defamation into the image of the world or reformation into the image of Christ. And he carries on not nice to these Pharisees, it would turn out. 
Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, 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 but you neglect justice and love of God. So basically, here's what was happening, right? The Pharisees and their anal retention kind of thing, what they were doing is that they were taking, again, the Jewish law and taking it to another crazy level. Now, the Jewish law in Leviticus said that in a time of harvests, because most of the early Jews would have been farmers, you take the best portion of your harvest, the first portion, and you take it to the temple, the tithe, and your tithe would be divided. Some would go to resource the temple, some would go to care for the poor, and some would be simply burned as an act of burned offering and worship. Now that goes all the way through to the time of Jesus, but it's just so that when by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had gone like on another crazy level, if you noticed it, to the point that they were dividing up their herbs, their herbs, they were into all different categories and they were dividing off a tenth, right? A tenth of my mint, a tenth of my cilantro, a a tenth of my cumin, every tiny little bit of they had and they were taking it to the local synagogue. I mean, you can imagine what it looked like when they presented their like, weekly basket to the priest. Like, here is one-tenth. In fact, they did wild flowers were one of the categories there, rue. It's just a wild thing, right? It was completely out of control. But Jesus says, here's the problem, guys. You neglect justice and the love of God. You neglect justice and the love of God. Now, that's a quote out of Micah 6, 8 that you might know, which says this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? See that? Just incredible, extravagant, outward giving. Verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your gods. That is what the Lord requires. You see, the problem for the Pharisees is that they got all the outside stuff bang on. They were like checking all the boxes and some on top of that, but yet they were neglecting the very heart of the whole matter. Now, just a little side point. The word justice is a word that we find hard. It's a word that's been co-opted into the American culture wars and weaponized, and we now think it has political meaning all over the place. But I just want to tell you, justice is at the very heart of the gospel. It is at the very core of who God is, and it's at the very core of how God saves us. But I also want to tell you that the way justice is used in scripture is not the way it gets used on the news or social media. Because the definition that actually probably the best one we have for what justice really means is this. It is to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others. That's the gospel. That's what God did for you and I. He disadvantaged himself for the advantage and the saving of others. See, basically what Jesus is saying in his summary, therefore, is that you need to have a heart of disadvantaging yourself in the way that you think about giving. He says to them in verse 42, Do you tithe? Do you do justice? Well, he says, you should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and love, without leaving the former undone. Is it about your inner actions and posture? Yes. Is it about how you act outwardly? Yes. It's about both. You can't have one without the other. 
This is like the moment in the dinner party where he takes the mic and drops the mic, grabs the hummus, heads for the door, I imagine. <laughs> right? When you get the inner thing right, it drives the right outer action. So how do you do it? How do you become a person of generosity? Well, we've been working through this wonderful material by our friend John Mark Coma all through from January, and he says this about all the spiritual practices. He says, if you want to change in any area of your life, you basically need three things to hold to be true. Number one, you need a vision of something in your head. Number two, you need an intention in your heart. And number three, you need to habituate it. You've got to get it into your muscle memory so that you eventually do it without even thinking about it. So let's just take a few minutes to work through those three steps in the area of generosity. So the vision Jesus is teaching on is a vision of the kind of universe we find ourselves in. If you ask the question, where does generosity come from? Then basically, generosity comes from God. It's not even what he does, it's who he is. At the very heart of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a relationship of overflowing love and generosity. It is who God is. It's a generosity that ultimately created the very world and universe that we are part of. It's an overflow of love. It's a generosity that ultimately saved us. Remember the John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. This is who God is in his inner core. And so because God is so self-giving, the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit sends the church into the world. Because it's that motion of generosity always happening, when we are generous, actually the reason we feel so good is because we are partaking in the inner life of God himself. Generosity is not about getting a better tax rate or doing some good things around us. It is about stepping into the life of the Trinity. The reason it feels so good is because when we're generous, God is happy. There is a radiant joy inside it. When we give, it might be like a faint, tiny echo, but we are actually participating in what God does in the world. Ronald Roheiser says, when you act like God, you feel like God. That's not a power game. But the reason you feel so good is because you're partnering with God. When you share and you love, you feel what the Trinity is like on the inside. When you're generous, it actually is, you feel like this is God's world. And therefore, I have enough. And I don't have to be afraid anymore. That's the vision. Then you have the heart. And what Jesus is teaching, as we've just heard this morning, is he's teaching about the inner architecture of our hearts. Billy Graham famously once said, if a person gets their attitude to money straight, it will straighten out almost every other area of their lives. Basically, like love and generosity are so deeply intertwined that you cannot take one without the other. You can't be a loving person if you can't talk about generosity. And you can't be a generous person if you can't also love. And so therefore, if the ultimate aim, as we've said all through the spring so far, has to become a person of love, we also recognize we have to become people of generosity along the way. Now, some of us will find that much easier than others. Some of us will find generosity baked into our personality type, our family of origin, some of us, not so much. 
my, my journey has been a long one on this area. My, my ancestors, the Chasers, um, were a wealthy bunch in the United Kingdom. But by my grandparents' generation, they were basically post-war, uh, post-World War II, missionaries in Africa, and they were English. If you put those three things together, it is a potent combination of scarcity. <laughs> Basically, in my family growing up, we did not talk about money, we did not spend money, we did not use money, and we quietly gave a lot of it away, but we definitely did not enjoy it in any respect whatsoever. My journey towards generosity has been a long journey of having to wrestle with these concepts deeply. And if you're here and you're in a relationship long-term with a spouse, you'll probably have figured out a long time in the way that your relationship to money probably feels quite different to maybe their relationship with money. Right? We're all on a journey toward generosity and none of us has fully got there. But the invitation is the same. Become a person of joyous generosity. This is what David Brooks, who's the New York Times columnist, says. He says, when people make generosity part of their daily routine, they refashion who they are. The interesting thing about your personality, your essence, is that not more or less, is not more, it is, is that it's not more or less permanent like your leg bone. Your essence is changeable like your mind. Every action you take, every thought you have, changes you, even just a little, making you a little more elevated or a little bit more degraded. If you do a series of good deeds, the habits of other-centeredness becomes gradually engraved into your life. But if you lie or behave callously or cruelly towards someone, your personality degrades and it's easier for you to do something even worse later on. The people who radiate permanent joy have given themselves over to lives of deep and loving commitment. Giving has become their nature and little by little they have made their souls incandescent. Isn't that beautiful? Little by little they've made their souls incandescent. Generosity is not something that you do. It is who you become along the way. That is the heartfelt position. But then we have our hands because we have to do something with that desire. And what Jesus is ultimately teaching on is he is teaching on the practice of tithing. Like it doesn't actually matter if you look at the Old Testament of Scripture or you look at the new one, you basically see the same pattern for how you take that grand vision and that passion you have and you turn it into becoming a generous person. And it is through this practice, spiritual discipline of choosing to give. You know, I think in culture, generosity is often defined as like the person who splashes the cash. Like the person who gives the great gifts at Christmas or takes people out on their boat or whatever it might be, I'm available for those things too. Um, <laughs> but actually in scripture, generosity is a quiet, repetitive, gentle, and almost always hidden action of self-giving love. That's what it is. That generosity does something to us and not just through us. It's not primarily about like freeing up resources it's actually a spiritual discipline of taking those big concepts and turning them into a reality so this is how we are living, whether we think about it or not. And like all the spiritual practices, they're not magic. They don't do something like amazingly as we do them, but what they do do is that they open up our lives 
like fasting. They open up our lives through sacrifice, through putting ourselves in a place of dependence on the Lord where we're like, well, God, now I don't have enough anymore. I am reliant on you because I have given and we open ourselves therefore up to the Holy Spirit who then has the opportunity to come and transform us. When we practice generosity, it actually sets our hearts free. Sets our hearts free from the love of money, from the fear of scarcity, from childhood trauma, from the need of success, from the drug of going up to the right all the time, a heart that's been in on itself, a blindness to those in need. Like It starts to change who we are. And a sermon won't do it. A book won't do it. Even a community group won't do it. But what will do it is the slow and predictable and steady and sacrificial action of choosing to be generous all the time. It is an act of sacrifice, not an act of religion. And it's a freeing act. I mean, many of you will say this, I'm sure, if I asked you. When you learn generosity, it's one of the most freeing things for the soul. Uh, Over the years, I've I've loved the picture that Jesus gives of, of scattering seeds, of the farmer. You remember that one? The farmer goes into his field and he just starts throwing seeds around. Like some goes on the good soil, some goes on the path, some gets choked up in the weeds. Like not all of it goes to really good purposes, but the farmer just keeps throwing the seed. And there's something about generosity in the kingdom of God that feels the same as that. It's not ultimately about us having ultimate strategic control. I don't know if any of you are people who like strategy. I like strategy. You know, I like to know what the return on investment might be if my money is going somewhere. But in the kingdom of God, it turns out that it's more just this action of giving away and trusting that the Lord will do as he wants. And as we give, the Lord starts to move and work in our lives. And and the most astonishing thing, and it is ridiculous, is that not as we do that action, not only does he heal our hearts, not only does he fix problems around us and need, but he also most ridiculously blesses and provides for us. I mean, I, I am absolutely convinced that the Lord owes me nothing. He saved me, he made me, he's wonderful. But I have discovered that every time you are generous to someone else, God is generous to you. Do you know that? I mean, it's a promise of scripture, honestly. And it happens not because of the prosperity gospel. I mean, you can try the prosperity gospel, right? Give $10, go home, Gulfstream jet on the drive. Feel free to try. It's heresy. But what is true is that God is more generous than you are. God is more generous than you are, right? And I just want to tell you a little bit of our story, Laura and I. And I don't tell it because I don't want you to think we've got it all sorted. We definitely don't have it all sorted. But I just want you to know how this works in practice. So um, my parents, although not always the biggest gift givers, did teach me a very good lesson when I was about 13. They did the three jar thing. Anyone seen the three jar thing? Basically, you divide the allowance. I got an allowance as a 13-year-old. It was probably about a dollar. Um, (laughs) Basically, got it in coins. 80% in the spending, 10% in the saving, and then 10% in the giving pot. And every Sunday we would go to church and we would give 10% of our giving into the weekly offering. And I think it was a great seed that got planted in my life, definitely to the point where when Laura and I got married, we basically both said we would love to be a family that tithes. We want to give of of the best of what we have away. And we'd learned that sort of 10% tithing kind of thing. And so we decided that we would do that. And honestly, when we were newly married, it was easy two full-time jobs, didn't have like lots of expenses. We could do that. 
And over like the first sort of five or six years of marriage, we kind of added a bit to that. You know, we found a missionary we really loved to support them and a child to sponsor and some other nonprofit agencies and things. And we'd built this lot of thing of giving. And it wasn't hard. But the challenge for us came actually when I started seminary. Because when you leave behind a business world and you go to seminary, it's like a slightly different reality in finances. And actually, in our church network we were part of, they basically said to us, you need to give up all your business relationships, you need to give up all your income streams, and instead we will give you just a little bit of money to live off every month. And I was like, hey, God's good. And then I saw when they wrote to me how much the money to live off every month was, and I was like, that's the same as our mortgage payment, exactly. Like, which means no food, <laughs> nothing else. We're going to be okay. We'll have a roof over our head of our little tiny house. But, you know, we were just like, God is faithful. He's good. It will work out. But the harder question was like, well, what do we actually do about our giving? Because we had this amount that we were giving, supporting these people in the church. And I think to this day, the right answer, or the, 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 the logical answer would have been strike them all down, turn them into a tenth of whatever we would had coming in and make it that. But when I sat down to do that exact work in front of my computer of the monthly payments on the computer, I just couldn't do it. I didn't tell Laura, bad move, but I just couldn't change them. And so I thought, okay, I'll leave it for a month. And if we're bankrupt in a month, I'll apologize to Laura and we'll be okay, right? And so I just left it and a month went past. And you know what, we were fine, we were fine. Two months went past at seminary, we were really fine. After about five months, suddenly all these different pots of money started to arrive all over the place. Like, it was just ridiculous. It wasn't that people just started dropping off cash at our front door. I'm available for that too. Uh, <laughs> but it was just literally like, oh, there's a little grant because you're a parent and you've got a child and you're studying. Or you can get vouchers for your kids to have free school lunches. Or you can do these tiny little things. But when you added them all up, suddenly we had more money coming in every month than we had ever had before. Like, we were not paying our mortgage once. After about six months of seminary, we were paying our mortgage twice every single month. It was absolutely ridiculous. Right, after two years of seminary, we had so much money coming in that we actually had to sit down, Laura and I, and said, we can't do this anymore. The money in the bank account is piling up. Something's got to happen. We need to give. And so we actually sat down after two years of broke seminary and started to take on a whole bunch of more obligations and opportunities to give. Now, I can just tell you honestly, it was the most joyful time of our lives. I mean, it was ridiculous watching every month God provide out of miraculous things. It was ridiculous. And that's just once. I mean, honestly, that cycle in our life has repeated so many times. I finished seminary. I went to be the pastor of four churches outside of London. In England, they pay pastors in peanuts or basically dried beans is like what you generally get. Um, but Laura wasn't working. We were pastor of these four churches and the roof fell in on the church. It was like, oh my goodness, we've got to do something. So I had thought, I'm going to have to stand up and say to the church, if you give, God will care for you and be generous to you. And I thought, I am broke. There's no way I can say that and I thought I'm gonna have to say it and I'm gonna have to give more money and I gave more money and guess what the Lord provided and the church got a new roof like over and over again the story of generosity is an inability to lose because God is good he's so good guys he's so good now let me just finish with some very practical points for you just to help you, because people always want to know, well, what is tithing then? You know, is it 1%, 10% before tax, after tax, or whatever, whatever? Here's the deal. There's no number. There's no number. 
I think on almost every spiritual journey, um, 10% is a great step on the journey for almost everybody I know, if you're a Christian. But I also know that in the Old Testament, if you want to be an Old Testament kind of person, they didn't have one tithe, they had three. So if you'd like to be an Old Testament Christian, that's kind of fine. Three tithes, 50%, roughly. Feel free. <laughs> in the New Testament, the pro- it seems to be much more important that we just learn the lessons of abundance and generosity and sacrificial giving. That seems to be the way that God would have it. It's kind of infuriating that God doesn't give a number because then you can't check the box. Instead, you just have to take the journey of becoming more and more the person that God has invited us to be. But the promise is that God will be more generous and he will work amazing things into our lives. You know, I just believe passionately that God is generous and that when we are generous, it transforms the outside, but it also transforms the inside. We live in a moment of human history which is all about material gain and money, which I think is the most powerful of things. It's like an atomic level powerful thing has the potential for huge good but it also has the potential for huge evil it's very much like atomic warfare in that way and i believe that wealth is both beautiful and very dangerous jesus says you know doesn't he over and over again it's easier for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god we have to do something about the money that we live with And it seems like the answer to how you come clean is that you dethrone the money, that you give it away, that you be generous. The invitation of Jesus, I believe, is to become a channel of blessing and not a pond of blessing. There's no points for how much blessing you have accumulated around yourself. The invitation is to open up your lives so that God can pour blessing in one way and that you can pour blessing out the other way. Now, I don't know this morning as we close and we come to respond, I don't know what that means for you. This is not a giving Sunday. You can respond in whatever way is most appropriate for you. But I do just want to say, maybe there are some of us who are like, we've known how to be generous when we've had enough or when it suited us or when we've seen a good enough need. But we don't know what it means to be generous in the quiet and the repetitive and the sacrificial. I just want to say, if that's you this morning, then in a minute, we will take up an offering, as we do every week. And if you want to, then this might be a great opportunity to simply say, of the first and the best of what comes in every month or every week or every six months or whatever you get paid by, this is my action. This is my response of trying to get something into my habits, into my disciplines that I don't have to think about every week, but I just know and learn to do. So I'm going to pray. And I don't want anyone to ever feel any guilt in this place or any shame. And if you are in need, I want to tell you we have benevolence here at Vintage and we want to care for you. We're not here to to kind of steal your money. But we do want to help each other on the journey of generosity. So let's take a moment. Let's take a moment. And let's just, just relax in the presence of the Lord. Because he's here. Why don't we start by just just spending some time with the Lord, just telling him how we feel when we think about money and giving. Just name the emotions that come to your mind in front of the Lord.
Lord, for any of us who, who feel, as I sometimes do, naturally just scared and anxious and worried that we won't have enough, please would you come, Holy Spirit, and remind us that you are a generous, loving, kind, good Father. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, where we feel just tempted to grab hold out of fear or greed, would you even this morning just speak to us about what you would have us do, personally and privately between you and us, of response.